That's okay? Yes, that's okay. Yeah. Okay. Welcome. I am Anders Bolling, and this is Mind the Shift, a podcast about a shifting world and an integrating humanity. A shifting world also means a changing natural environment. Almost 8 billion people should have a larger ecological footprint on the earth than 3 or 4 billion, which was the global population 50, 60 years ago. Or maybe it's not inevitable. My guest today is Josef Reichholf. He's a German zoologist, evolutionary biologist, and ecologist. He was an honorary professor at the Technical University of Munich from 1974 to 2010. He has headed the State Zoological Collection in Munich and is a past board member of World Wildlife Fund Germany. Reichholf studied biology, chemistry, geography, and tropical medicine at the Ludwig Maximilians University in Munich, obtaining a doctorate of science in 1969. He has written several books, of which some are considered controversial, like false prophets about our attraction to disasters. He has a non-alarmist stance in the climate debate that has made him popular in certain camps and unpopular in others. Welcome to the show, Josef. Thank you for invitation. I'm happy to give some answers to your questions as far as possible I can do it. I'm very happy to have you on the show. Uh, I don't know what the weather is like down in southern Bavaria today, but uh, have you seen any any butterflies today, Josef? Uh, oh, just a few. Uh, this year we have very few butterflies, uh, despite the fact uh, that the weather is uh, quite fine now. We had a terrible weather in May and June, and these two months are both essential for the butterfly populations. Okay. Yeah. Yes, because I know that that one of your um, your uh, main um, uh, fields of research uh, is the studying of butterflies. I hope that's correct. Uh, yes. Uh, yes and no. <laughs> so logical sense, uh, I'm studying more moths, the night flying uh, ah. Lepidoptera, which are much more numerous uh, with respect to species and also much more important. Uh, for instance, for birds as uh, food objects, uh, the caterpillars of the night-flying moths are the main, the staple food uh, for insectivorous birds. Yes, I wanted you to tell us a little bit about the importance of butterflies or moths, as you say, or that, that group of insects, because you know so much about it. And I mean, everybody loves a butterfly, of course, they, they're considered beautiful, but can you tell us a little bit more about their significance. What what makes them so special? Well, uh, there are at least uh, three central points uh, with respect to the importance of butterflies and moths. The first one I have already mentioned is the ecological uh, function being um, stable food for many organisms, especially birds, uh, but also for insectivorous mammals. The second one is many species are pollinating the diverse flowers. They are night flying and uh, we don't see what they are doing during the night. 
And um, also very important aspect is uh, the value for many people. They are very fine, very pretty animals, and many people are fond of butterflies and moths, and uh, I wouldn't like to see them uh, gone uh, for um, the sole reason, uh, reason uh, of uh, their beauty and their, their cultural uh, yeah. effects, which are yeah. the most dangerous uh, factors affecting the abundance and distribution of butterflies and moths. So they are threatened us, would you say? Uh, yes, uh, they are uh, very much loved by people and they are very important uh, in nature. Mm. Uh, we'll come back to the question of, of uh, the threat against species and insects and so, but butterflies are fascinating. I, I have the impression here in Sweden that the number of butterflies has gone down a little bit, but, but it seems to go up and down year by year a little bit. And I, I saw a very beautiful one just just the other day that I have, hadn't seen before, and it was was all black with with white uh, uh, the side just the, the the outer side of the wings was white or yellowish white, but it was all black. It was yes. quite big. <laughs> <laughs> I never saw that before. Our mantel. Uh, okay. Know in the moment the English uh, the word. What for was it. what was it again in German? Trauer Mantel. Trauer Mantel. Okay. Oh, I think it's yeah. I know the Swedish word now. Sorry, Mantel. Oh, okay. Well, I don't. Yeah, I don't know the English word either. Mm -hmm. So anyway, that's fascinating. Uh, so 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 much about butterflies right now. Can you go back a little bit in time now and tell us about your? I, I mentioned your CV a little bit in the beginning. I hope I didn't miss any important parts of it. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about uh, your early days as um, in the ecological field, so to speak? I mean, you were among the founders of a group called Gruppe Ökologie in the seventies. And this developed, as far as I understand, you have to correct me if I'm wrong, but it developed into what was called Bunt, and which in turn, I understand, led to the formation of the German Green Party. So how was the discussion in, in those days and what were your driving forces? Well, in those days, the Silent Spring by Rachel Carson was... Uh, certainly the most important uh, book which uh, has influenced the ecological movement and uh, the first people uh, who uh, came together to form a new initiative uh, for conserving nature uh, was this uh, group of ecologists as they call them Gruppe Ökologie and uh, after a few years, it became clear uh, there must be more than uh, a loose association of some professors and uh, TV uh, people. And the UND has been founded. And uh, I have been very happy at, the, at, the, at that time. But uh, then I had to see it and had to acknowledge the trend which uh, 
which uh, overtook the movement at first the anti-atomic activitations especially mm -hmm. uh, strengthened by the Chernobyl Hypergau uh, and afterwards it became an ideology and as a scientist, as a natural scientist, uh, I uh, I try to uh, remain un, uh, in unbiased, by, uh, not biased by ideology. Uh, for me, the, the facts are counting. Uh, maybe I give a, an example, birds, mammals, even butterflies and moths are more important, uh, more uh, abundant in towns and cities than in the countryside. And this is a fact which means to me we can't say the city is bad and this development of cities have to be confined and uh, restricted. And the countryside is good, even when it is full of uh, cornfields, of mice fields, or other extensive uh, stretches of uh, intensive agriculture where no animals and uh, plants are living anymore. And mm. this is one example uh, how ideology, which became the green ideology, became in contrast to uh, the ecological facts and to a scientific position. And that's why I was uh, withdrawing myself from uh, these uh, activations. Would you say there was a rift between you and your fellow ecologists, uh, the, the, your colleagues on the, on the ideolog ideological side, so to speak, that there was a rift opening between you? Uh, yes, uh, an, an opening uh, over time. At first, a very small one, but it was increasing and increasing. And after a few years, I had to accept the fact um, that that is not what I am meaning with ecological research and with strategies to save nature. Mm -hmm. I changed my mind and uh, went over to WWF and uh, was uh, for a number of years uh, in charge of uh, higher positions in the German WWF activities, and then for uh, purely uh, scientific uh, reasons for my own research, I withdraw also from WWF without uh, any uh, conflicts with the aims and uh, the habits of these uh, internationally active uh, nature conservation agencies. Okay, but what was, were the reasons the same when you left WWF, uh, that you felt that they were more ideological than you wanted to be, or was there something else? Only to some degree, uh, WWF uh, uh, very soon uh, came uh, to the train which was uh, becoming, uh, was moving uh, even faster uh, with climate change. and. Mm -hmm. I could see that many actions, also uh, sponsored by WWF, were without results for nature, because having um, activities against climate change, maybe it is worthwhile 
for some distant future, but in the moment the problems are much greater in conservation of species of habitats and uh, of changing the way habitats are destroyed. And that has been uh, the, the problem with which I have been confronted uh, in the, the last uh, five or six years. Uh, I have been working with WWF and then I uh, said it's enough. I uh, leave these uh, organizations, which are political ones, mm. and remain an independent scientist, which means I myself can change my mind because the facts are so strong and so clear that I have to change my mind. Mm. If it is good for me, for my uh, former uh, strategies and presentations or not, I have to accept the facts. Yeah, I understand. Are we talking about now, when you left the WWF, are we talking about the 1990s or what year? It's uh, around the um, year 2000 and the early uh, ones of the new century. Okay. Yes, because you were mentioning that they were talking more and more about climate change. And as yes. far as I remember, that was not uh, really a big thing until maybe late 1990s. Yes, yes, exactly. Okay. So let's delve into that a little bit then, because you are also known for, for having said things about climate change that are not uh, mainstream or what you might call it. Uh, I mean, there are, of course, a range of scientists uh, having all kinds of opinions, but uh, you know as well as I do that, that uh, there is a narrative that is uh, the big narrative that climate change is acute and, and very dangerous and all that but so if you if we delve a little bit into it uh, what would you say having a non-alarmist view of on climate change what would you say are the main the main flaws the main mistakes in the mainstream narrative around this well um, i try to condense my thoughts uh, on uh, a few topics. First, climate and climate science are physical science. It is a matter of fact that uh, at zero centigrade, water is melting or uh, freezing, depending on the direction of the moving of temperature. That's very okay, and um, there's not, no discussion about it. However, applied to living systems, as things are changing, organisms, habitats, environments are adjusting to temperature and humidity precipitation regimes. They are adjusting within their bodies, they are adjusting is their performances and, and that's a very important point in my view, for not a single major organism, purely temperature is the limiting factor. Temperature is something like a means, uh, but it is not essential for living. Of course, we have to set aside 
extreme temperatures like deep freezing or uh, boiling uh, hot uh, water, that's clear. Mm -hmm. But changes within tens of centigrades on average mean nothing for most organisms. They have to live with the real temperatures. The change of real temperatures from day to night over the seasons and over the years and the fluctuations are much greater than the changes in the averages. The second point is temperature in its present distribution over the world or over a specific region is an artifact. It is artificially created by several stations where temperature is uh, drawn from um, yeah, measured. Yes, from apparative uh, uh, measurements. However, when I as an ecologist go into the field in order to make measurements, I receive an endless variety of different temperatures each day of and go out into the garden and the temperature which is shown there is different from the official from the next meteorological station. I can go down as a thermometer to the bottom into the upper uh, soil or into the grass simply and it's different from the official measurements. I go into the sun, I go into the shade, into the forest, into a cornfield or whatever you want, right? around the corner of a house and you have different temperatures. And the problem is to make sense of all these differences. The network of stations where temperatures are measured is quite dense now, but it has been very open with large tracts of, of landscapes and uh, vast uh, distances across the oceans where no temperature measurements have been available in the 19th century. Mm. We have here in Bavaria, in southern Bavaria, one of the oldest meteorological station on the summer. Uh, on the summit of uh, a mountain south of Munich, which is uh, nearly exactly 1000 meters in height. Mm -hmm. the Heisenberg station and the temperature measurements from the Hohen Heisenberg station show they started in 1880 uh, in uh, 1780 they cover the whole of the 19th and of course 20th and uh, as far as we are now 21st century and if we look at the measurements of the Juan Peisenberg station, there are great fluctuations in the annual temperatures, the averages for the summer or the winter temperatures. But over the stretch of 140 years or 240 years, there is no trend. No trend at all. No trend. The trend shows up if we start in the middle of the 19th century, because it was a minimum. The turn of the 18th to the 19th century has been very warm. 
with summers nearly as warm as in the end summers of the 20th century. Mm -hmm. For the whole stretch, there is nearly no trend available. And the distribution and abundance of animals, which are at least to some degree sensible to temperature, like butterflies or like uh, lizards and some snakes, shows us they have been much more abundant in the cooler 18th and 19th century than at present during the warmer times. Why? The simple reason is vegetation on ground level is now much denser due to the artificial supply with nitrogen and phosphorus compounds. Plants are much more intensive growing and therefore transpirating water, which cools down the habitats close to the surface where most of the sensible animals are living. The warmth-loving animals are decreasing in our time, despite the fact that on the front, like in Scandinavia, there is some gain in area of distribution. But in the core areas, much more in southern regions, the cooler, the cooler uh, habitats close to the ground are much closer to the cooler situation in former centuries than as a result of the increase in average temperatures in our mm. time. And I could. Uh, Keep on telling. Yeah. It's a bit complicated, I guess, for, for people who are not used to thinking in these terms, but, but I, I kind of get what you're saying. But I was going to say, I was going to mention Scandinavia because, as you know, I can understand also that, that the, the network of measurement stations, of meteorological stations, is very crucial in, in, to this matter because, I mean, if you have many stations, you can get another average than if you have a few stations, which we had before and all that. So that's, that's important. But on the ground, you can see some changes. You can see, for instance, that since 1979, the, the summer ice uh, around the North Pole has diminished quite, quite a bit. And you can also see that, uh, and I think this is, these are actu actual factual things that they have found. In, in Sweden, for instance, um, the last uh, day of frost in the, in the spring is now about a week earlier than it was 50, 60 years ago. And, and the first day of frost in the, in the fall is about a week later than it used to be. So I, they can see some changes and there is also this, uh, the, the forest limit in the mountains in Northern Swedish, Sweden is slowly climbing upwards, which is an indication that it's getting a little bit warmer. So what do you th think about those changes, the changes on the ground that you can actually see? Well, that's every, the, every ex example is okay, certainly. But there are in the background effects of human indu induced changes on the ground. The form of forest management has changed. There have been planted new forests, uh, for instance, in Norway, further north than in former times. 
grazing has been abundant in large areas, grazing by sheep. The land use change is also very significant and it is very, very difficult to separate land use changes from pure climate changes. And uh, let me say, I don't doubt that the climate is warming. What I'm questioning that every change associated with climate warming is negative. A lot of changes are quite favorable for nature or for agriculture too. And these other sides are not respected in, in the, when we have to evaluate the changes and the activities against the changes. It is something like an economic uh, weighting. What should we do? How effective is it? And my criticism is we have spent a lot of money, obviously without success, fighting climate change because the amount of carbon dioxide, which is set free into the atmosphere, is still rising. For what has this huge mass of money been good? Would it have been better to spend it in ecological activities on the ground mm. for planting more forests or for changing the forest usage, which is common uh, in Scandinavia as well as in uh, Central Europe. It is uh, agroforestry. It is an, a type of intensive use of forest production and not intended to use the forest as carbon dioxide sinks. Mm. If we would like to have these effects in the forest, we would give them much more chances and uh, much larger amounts where they can grow without forestry usage of the forest. This um, is just one of, um, many, of many other examples. The type of agriculture which is, which is uh, characterizing the European, European Union is so destructive and sets such a large amount of uh, CO2 free that changing agriculture would have been much more effective in fighting against climate change than what we call in German an Ablasshandel, which has been in former times, in medieval times, paying for the sins we have had committed <laughs> to um, enable yes. the soul to uh, yeah. come into heaven. And much of our, in the last uh, 10 or 20 years of our activities fighting climate change is quite close to such a type of not working is money spending. And we see after three decades yeah. of 
spending very, very much money. The effects have been so small that they are next to nothing. Yeah, that's a that's a punch in the face uh, for much of the 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 climate um, change politics that's going on. I know that one of the most uh, fascinating things I've seen you have said and written about is this that you are mentioning here: the fact that uh, not everything can be negative about a slight warming of the of course i mean a six degree warming would perhaps be catastrophic but one or two degrees i to me it's also nonsense to say that everything has to be bad about it because you have pointed out for instance the simple fact that if you look at the abundance of species around the poles and compare it to the abundance of species around the equator it's it's completely obvious that that species love warmth more than than it than they love cold can you can you yeah. tell us a little bit more about that the 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 way you have put that well uh, there is only one important uh, trend against this rule and these are the marine mammals there are more marine mammals in much larger natural populations close to the poles in the oceans than in equator in equatorial waters that's okay. due to the amount of food which is available but the general trend is clearly more species much more species towards the equator and declining biodiversity from the equator from the warm regions to the cold ones and the ice ages have been destructive for species richness not only in Europe, but also in North America and to a small degree also in the southern parts of South America. And after the rewarming, the species could increase in their distributional areas and increase in numbers. And they would have been increasing still further on if mankind would allow that they Mankind is fighting against uh, the the species uh, reoccupation uh, of the areas which have been set free by the retreating, retreating uh, glaciers. Again, climate alone is not the main factor, but if we see only climate change of the main factor, then we, we create a situation that the real causes are neglected and nobody acts against the real causes of destruction of natural variety and of uh, also those uh, parts of nature which, which are essential for us for using freshwater which is clean or forests uh, which we should have also for securing our our future for wetlands and so on uh, all these uh, activities which have been the center for nature nature conservancies and uh, conservation activities in the 70s and 80s have been declining under the impact of climate change. And that is 
uh, a trend which makes me very uneasy. Mm. So, w what are the real causes? What if you would pick two causes for the decline of of uh, habitats uh, that we should fight instead of only fighting climate change? Which two would you choose? Well. Uh, with respect to the European Union, the most destructive activity is agriculture. Mm. It is uh, irresponsible that the European Union is competing with their overproduction of meat and also agricultural uh, products like, like grain on the world market, dictates prices on the world market which are destructive for the third world. And all the people are uh, crying, well, the poor ones in the Southern Hemisphere, uh, we have to be kinder to them and so on. Uh, this is uh, some sort of uh, a lamentation, which is really unethical. We should withdraw our huge amounts of agricultural subsidies and return to a local production which is based on the needs and demands of the local population and we should in some sort of a symbiosis import from the surplus of products of the third world which are growing there much better like ananas or uh, uh, bananas but uh, is it really necessary that the European Union puts a lot of money in producing rice hmm. in no it's a good question corn for making biofuels and importing foodstuff, soybean, for feeding cattle, which is housed in uh, stables under really incredible conditions uh, with respect uh, to animal health and uh, <laughs> some uh, kind of uh, ethical uh, form yeah. of meat production. I guess the same could can be said of the the agriculture in United States, Canada, Australia. Yes, it's, uh, exactly. It's a it's a copy mm. of the American agricultural system. Yeah. So that's 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 a thing that we should fight instead of uh, only focusing on climate change all the time. You mentioned before that when you left uh, WWF and before that even the the other organizations that were. Uh, be, uh, one reason was that they were becoming more political and it was ideological. Would you say that the IPCC, the United Nations Climate um, Organization, is also politicized uh, by now? Uh, yes, of course. It's big business, uh, which is in the background. And uh, as, a, as a matter of fact, the most important institution in Germany, the Potsdam Institute, is an institution by the state, by the government, and not an institution based on universities. We had a lot of climate scientists from the universities. Mm. Why haven't they been good enough for dealing with the problem? 
that I can't understand as uh, having been a teacher on uh, the Munich universities. I know there are excellent colleagues in this area. And we also had to see how important it has been in the past uh, decades for receiving research funds to include, to include in times of climate change. Yeah. It has been something like a magical key for opening the funding. And mm -hmm. that is always uh, disturbing, uh, critical. Uh, Potsdam Institute of uh, Climate is uh, known for its alarmism. <laughs> they often yes, come yes. with reports that are very uh, They are crying because they need the money. Mm. And they are not funded, not uh, institution independently funded by universities. That's understandable, okay. of course. But it, the question is, has it been really necessary? And is it good for the public reception of uh, those activities is, uh, as we see in the present uh, corona crisis, is it not better to have the independent scientists of, from the universities and the medical institutions as a background for political decisions? That's for me a question which I would clearly answer in direction to the universities and the independent institutions yes one is inclined to concur with with that of course so if we leave climate change change for for a second uh, and uh, talk a little bit more about your your general view on ecology and the nature one of your books that i've read uh, a few years ago so i can't remember exactly every part of it but uh, it's called stable imbalances which is kind of intriguing because it sounds like a contradiction in terms. Can you explain a little bit more about what you mean by that concept, stable imbalances? Well, I tried it. It's uh, basically quite simple. We are stable imbalances as a system. Our organism works far from equilibrium. It has to be far from equilibrium when our body reaches equilibrium, we are dead. The permanent flow of energy enables living organisms to counteract the general physical trend of the second law of thermodynamics. And what is a matter of fact for every organism which is not in a dormant state, deep frozen in, uh, in uh, liquid nitrogen, for instance, uh, uh, something like a, a conserve uh, for special uses like uh, sperm for fertilizing cows and the like. This is a, a special situation. Living organisms have to be far from equilibrium to maintain their internal well-balanced state. What has been wrong and is still going wrong is to transfer this internal balance into the outer 
worlds, uh, ecosystems as they are generally called. Ecosystems mm. are not stable and haven't to be stable. They are the environment of organisms, but no ecosystem, not a single one, has a central regulation, which is typical for an organism. No ecosystem has a natural boundary, which is basically for every organism, it is separated from the surrounding. Ecosystems are separated by research aspects, but they are not entities for themselves in nature. You can't see an ecosystem. You haven't certainly never seen an ecosystem pairing with another one and producing <laughs> offsprings. This is uh, obviously nonsense, but yeah. in nature conservation, especially, and also in some parts of ecological science, ecosystems are treated like organisms. And this organism identity is a basic fault. It is wrong, deadly wrong. Ecosystems are always independent from the organisms which are living in, and the organisms have to be in imbalance with the ecosystems if they are to keep on working. That's a big problem, but it has a name. Following the Rio Earth Summit, mm -hmm. have a name for this, sustainable growth. Oh yeah. Sustainable growth means change, means growth, but within limits which are tolerable, which are stable enough for being tolerable by the environment and also by the users for longer times. And if you look into the ecological textbooks, you won't find a definition for these kind of ideas. Okay. Are open for everybody's interpretation and uh, therefore in effect meaning nothing. And that's a, a big uh, point in ecological science and also uh, with respect to nature conservations. We treat nature as if they had to be stable, unchanged, mm -hmm. but nature was ever changing and will be changing. We have to live with changes. Everybody has to live with changes in his and her own life, which is changing from the beginning to the end. Yeah, constantly. The societies and always we are dealing you mean with... It's a kind of an oscillation from, from high to low to, to abundance to less abundance, from, to, from life to death, constantly in nature. Is yeah, that what you're saying? Exactly. And we have yeah. to accept that. Yeah, and there is no state of nature which is privileged, which is the right one, but there no. is a number of changes which are good for us. And we have to define what we mean with good for us and good for other organisms. Maybe that can change over time as well? Of, of course. Yeah. We have to accept that uh, 
which is really but nowadays uh, people 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 yes. panic you know when when they hear about uh, species are diminishing and uh, and uh, some habitats are are getting smaller and all that they panic because they like you say they they have this idea that oh nature has always been in balance and now human beings are 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 uh, changing this balance so it's is it would you say it's kind of a a kind of hubris that we think that we are the cause of all evil in nature yeah that's uh, that's exactly the point uh, i think um what we call in german machbarkeit uh, the makeability is uh, in the background people want to have the right and the possibility to make everything and to keep everything in a state they want to have it and that's uh, the main problem and if we look only a little bit down in history into history we will find no period of historical times up to our present where no changes have been happening mm. Not every change has been good, of course, but on the long run, we are happy that the world was changing into a state in which we are now living, isn't it? Yes, and it makes the world and, and life a lot more interesting, doesn't it, when it's, when it's changing all the time? <laughs> yeah. Do you think people have too, well, I guess you already answered this question, if people have too narrow a perspective on, on nature? And the ecological systems i guess you have said yes to that <laughs> yeah this, uh, this is an, uh, a western tradition we have separated since uh, the enlightenment at least nature from mankind mm. this separation is now we are so expressed and so uh, so predominant in our daily life than in Western culture. In Eastern Asia or in India, there are much more areas in which mankind and nature are integrating concerning respect of nature, concerning nearness of animals to people and concerning also the relative value of humans compared to other living organisms. The spectrum uh, over the uh, populations of mankind is very large. One knows it that there are populations which try not even to uh, destroy the life of an ant and uh, which are feeding rats and mice because uh, they are living organisms. And on the other side, there is uh, the Western society which separates the meat and the meat production from the fact that millions and millions animals have to live to produce meat and are killed in an unhuman state in in a cruelty mm. which is uh, incredible for other people of uh, the world and, uh, our hubris in the western society is in this area especially pronounced mm. 
do you eat meat yourself, Joseph? Yes, I, I eat meat. Uh, mm. I, I'm not a, a, yet a, a purist uh, saying every uh, animal life is much more counting than uh, plant life. We need proteins and we use a lot of proteins which are produced by plants. My wife is a Japanese and by tradition uh, has uh, another nothing selection of uh, food stuff, of course, uh, than we have in Bavaria or in uh, Europe. But uh, and that uh, I think is an important point. If we try to, to look what we are doing, then uh, we receive some uh, kind of positioning which to to our uh, habit of living and not uh, an absolute one, like an ideology. Mm. Okay. There is a lot of talk about what is called the sixth mass extinction event now. So uh, talking about uh, stable imbalances and, and the fact that there are actually um, many species are diminishing in numbers, not that is not to say that that they go extinct completely, but they are diminishing in numbers. And so some ecologists and, and debaters and, and others, uh, politicians as well, are talking about the sixth mass extinction event. What are your opinions about that concept? Is there such a, a thing going on? Well, I, I think basically the facts are showing a general decline in species diversity and species abundance. And the smaller populations become, the greater is the risk of uh, final uh, extermination of the remaining uh, populations which are too small to survive. What we know is, um, roughly a thousand species which have been exterminated in the past centuries. Data as a dodo is uh, not merely a saying in English, but it is a fact that the dodo, the, the Dronte of uh, Mauritius, has been uh, destroyed by people and uh, will come never again back uh, into London. The other point is, we know, in effect, more about the stars and the universe than about the richness of animal and plant species on the earth. Mm. Counting, numbering, and scientifically exploring species abundance is not a great science since many years. Wow. The zoologists and the botanists which are working on this subject are marginal in the science, uh, in the realm of science. Why is it that numbering and uh, giving an unknown species a name 
it's, it's not it's not prioritized in science yes yes and despite the fact that we know that a, a great number of species have been essential with respect to medicine to fighting diseases like malaria or some other infectious diseases we still are dealing with the diversity of nature as a, if it is something like a playground of uh, beetle collectors or butterfly enthusiasts and mm -hmm. so on. So are you saying that we basically don't know how many species there are out there? And, and, and yes. uh, I mean, yes. the talk about what? extinction is, uh, is, is not really well-founded in that respect, or what, where are you yeah. aiming? Yeah. Yeah. What we should know is a real amount of extinction, but uh, it is impossible to ascertain this uh, fact if we can't research the areas which are going to de be destroyed, for instance, tropical uh, rainforests, in advance of the destruction, we can only calculate retrospective what might have been lost due to the fact that species richness is dependent on well-known factors like area size, isolation degree and general richness of the type of habitat and because we have calculated numbers of possibly extinct species in the process of the last uh, decades we are not able to show the public which has what uh, species have been really gone Mm -hmm. the, the giant panda or the, the large whales are species which can be presented as flagship species as uh, the environmentalist calls them. Oh. And if you have a, a small bird which can be localized, like a, a small warbler on the seashell islands, then people are able to save this species. This has been done on several occasions, but if you don't know what is disappearing, you can't save it. And this is uh, a big unknown fact in the recent debate uh, concerning the sixth um, extinction. extinction. Yeah. It's a contentious issue, this thing about uh, uh, calculating how many small uh, yeah. species might might have have gone uh, and there's been a bit debate going on about that for, for decades uh, and you were talking about flagship species like big ones that we can see the pandas and things like that uh, uh, one type of animals that is not a flagship that there are not flagships but are have recently been been in, in focus because uh, there have been some studies showing that they are diminishing diminishingly drastically at least in some parts of the world that are insects and now we're maybe full circle here coming back to the moths and the butterflies yeah. uh, i think it was in germany actually that there, there was this very very well known and uh, written about uh, study that showed that at, 
at some point, somewhere there, uh, close to, I think, to a natural reserve, the number of flying insects had gone down by about 70% during the last two decades or three yeah. decades or so. So how worried should we be about that insect, uh, the, the amount of insects going down drastically like that? Um, well, um, may I add uh, at this point that uh, probably I've been the first one uh, who has shown the severe decrease in insect uh, abundance with light trap captures in my lower Bavarian uh, area where I have been grown up from 1969 uh, to 1996. And in this uh, series of time, the numbers of night flying butterflies decreased by 85% and of oh. other small insects by 96%. Hmm. On the margins of the villages where intensive agriculture is right uh, in the neighborhood. In the city of Munich, I have made similar investigations in the 1980s and in the first decade of uh, on uh, starting with 2003. And to our great surprise, numbers of species and the abundance of butterflies, of moths, night flying moths, remain stable and are now on a higher level than out on the countryside in Eastern Bavaria. Oh, really? So there, there are more moths and butterflies in, within yeah. the yeah. city of Munich than in the countryside around it. Ah, so that's is fascinating. It, despite the fact of the high light pollution, which is typical for cities like uh, uh, Munich with one and a half million uh, inhabitants, of course, the lights are bright every night, depending not from moon and weather, they are mm. always light. Despite the fact the night flying insects are more abundant than out on the countryside. And as a matter of fact, on the countryside, the birds are decreasing. This year, I haven't heard a single skylark singing. Okay. I'm living close to the lower reaches of the river Inn on in the border area between Bavaria and Upper Austria. I have a better chance here to see a white-tailed sea eagle than hearing a lark. Oh, that sounds so a bit tragic. Fundamentally, the things have been changed. There have been great success in conserving birds and other animals and also plants along the watercourses, but we have lost the landscape and the landscape which is used by agriculture makes up 55% of Germany. And what the Prefeld study which you mentioned has shown is very important in this context. The study has been conducted in areas, in small areas, which are protected 
which are not used by agriculture. And despite the protection, the decrease in numbers in abundance has been so high, 75%. That means even our protected areas are not able to conserve what they should have conserved because poisoning by agriculture and eutrophication by the excessive use of fertilizers affects also the nature conservation areas. Hmm. Best of are the big cities. That's the situation. And hmm. I think we should severely think about these facts and ask the question, must this be the future of the symbiosis of the people and the highly subsidized countrysides where only a tiny fraction of the former peasant publications are now big farmers which are producing like under conditions of open industrial factories. So uh, we should be pretty worried then, but it sounds like the agriculture, the highly modern agriculture is the culprit here. Yeah, that's a, a central factor affecting not only biodiversity, but also the quality of life of our population. I think the Swedish population can't imagine how different the situation is in Central Europe in these areas where agriculture has this high level of intensity. Sweden is a large country, especially in the northern parts. We have, we don't have such northern parts. The alpine areas are full of people which are coming in summertime for holidays and in winter for skiing. Populations are simply too big for the small areas which are in something like a natural state and not under heavy pressure of agriculture. Mm. Yes, I know. I've, I've traveled around in Germany, so I've, I've seen the density. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Josef Reichholf, uh, it's been an education and a pleasure talking to you. Very, very interesting. Uh, I hope you can uh, enjoy the rest of the summer and, and see some more butterflies, hopefully, in the area where you live. Thank you very much for coming on the show. I have to thank also very much. It was a pleasure for me and I hope I, I, I could be understood in uh, the most important parts uh, from my point of view. Thank you.